0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously.
1: Alright, we're going to start a new series today. Um... And we, we're going to start a series called Cross-Shaped Life, which we named after the song that we just sang. We actually, our community wrote that song, and I found it so inspiring that I wanted to do a series out of it. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the attentive listener, and there's probably four of you, will realize last year we did, some, we did some rummaging in Mark. Why? Pray tell, would we go to Mark again? And the answer Uh, is that Mark, the presentation of Jesus in Mark is the presentation of Jesus that the American church most needs. Because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is only rightfully encountered in his suffering. Not in his spectacle, not in the entitlement that he could claim, not in the, the center of power or the middle of a culture war. He is found enthroned on the cross. And that whole way of understanding the Christian life, uh, I don't know for you, but for me, desperately needs to be re-encountered. So, because we're going to start in Mark today, we'll begin in Genesis. All right, so let's go Genesis chapter one. Now, the next 10 minutes, I'm going to summarize one thread of the entire Old Testament. All right, so I'm going to go pretty fast. And I'll point out the key words that I want uh, in your mind. Because, shockingly, Jesus doesn't just sort of appear out of nowhere as an uh, American Protestant. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus sort of shows up in the middle of a story. And unless you understand the story, you really miss Jesus. And the reason Jesus is so easily like, captured into false uh, Jesus agendas is because we don't keep him centered into the story he's a part of. So uh, let's start in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, God creates the world, of course. And in verse uh, 26, God says to God's self, let us make humanity in our image. It's not mankind, it's g- generic humanity in our image and in our likeness. And the reason we're going to make them in our image and likeness is so that they may what? Rule. Right? I, I expect more participation here when I ask the next time, but for now... We'll start with that. Rule. Now, the word rule here is not like oversee a staples, okay? This isn't like manage a Burger King. The, the word rule is like a prince, princess, king, or queen word. And because we're made in the image of God, and we're called to rule, what does that imply about what God's doing? He's ruling too, correct? Correct. That's so we're made in the image of our ruler God. This is the first time in the Bible we encounter kingly or royal language. It's applied to the image bearers, but it's um, implied to be applied also to God. Because if we're doing what he does, and we're called to rule, then obviously he's ruling too. Now, how good do we do at being image bearers? Right, we, we don't make it three pages, Right, we, By page number three, we've taken the, the power, the authority, the creativity, all that God gave us as image bearers, we've taken that and used it for our own self-advantage. And so sin and death and violence enter the world. What does God do? Well, in response to the fallenness now of the humans, in Genesis 12, God calls a man and a woman, Abram and Sarah, And he calls this couple into newness. He says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your household to the land I will show you, and then I will make you into a great nation. So this is going to be, he's creating a political entity, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, We reference this promise a lot because the rest of the Bible is the outworking of that. Like, that's God's plan for the world. To call forth from human history a community who will live under his reign and rule and show how beautiful it is to live under God's lordship so that other people might be attracted into that community and be renewed in their humanity. That's the picture. Now, how well does Abram do? Right, not well. And so we begin this descent. And at one point, I mean, and and Yahweh is so gracious. He takes this community, he redeems them out of slavery. And the first time they declare him to be their king is actually right after he saves them from Pharaoh in the Red Sea. They sing a, a song of triumph in Exodus 15. It begins like this I will sing to the Lord he is highly exalted both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea those were the Egyptians the Lord is my strength and my defense he's become my salvation he is my God I will praise him my father's God I will exalt him and then at the end of this poem they say the Lord reigns again another royal word the Lord reigns forever and ever this is the first time we get king language directly applied to God the idea is that God has redeemed a people, he's formed them into a political entity called a nation, and he stands as their king, as their sovereign. How well does this go? Nope, immediately. Let's make a golden calf, y'all. Um, so, I mean, those silly Israelites, I'm so glad we're not like them at all. In Exodus 19... God gives them a job description, and this turns out to be the same job description Adam and Eve got on page one. Israel, you yourselves have seen what I, God, did to Egypt and how I carried you out of there on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you obey me fully, keep my covenant that out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a what? a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. This is this was the invitation given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, now given to the nation of Israel. He calls them to Mount Sinai. He gives them Torah. He invites them now to pick up again the vocation that was given to our primal ancestors. How well do they do? Poorly! Poorly. Yes! That's the right answer, by the way, for the rest of the questions I'm going to be asking. They do very poorly. God organizes them into a geopolitical entity, and then they decide they don't want to be represented by God or have God over them as king. They would rather have a human king. And so this conversation ensues in for Samuel, where Samuel um, heard the people say, give us a king to lead us. He was displeased, so he prayed to the Lord. And then God almost comforts Samuel in the midst of this. Thank you, Stephanie Skipper. He says, uh, the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, it's not you, Samuel, that they're rejecting, but they have rejected me as their what? As their king. Now, we, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, how does the kingship go? Poorly. Come on, poorly. Right. Saul, poorly. David starts out, Great ends poorly. Solomon starts great, ends poorly. Civil war, kingdoms split, and then scattered into the nations. So the question from some of the earliest followers of uh, Yahweh was, when will God become king again over Israel? And the poets and the prophets hinted, particularly in the book of Isaiah, that this was indeed going to happen in the future. Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort. Okay, so this is God uh, speaking to his people about his return. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service in exile has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Of, and then, and then we. this is kind of weird grammatically, but the idea is, A character is introduced who will be in the wilderness and call the people to go into the wilderness to prepare for the way, prepare the way for God's return. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God." This is obviously metaphor. The idea that you will prepare yourselves, Israel, for God's return, is spoken of like a highway being made over rough terrain. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground become level so that God can come. Next, the joy of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. This, the Lord has spoken. Later on in that chapter. You who bring good news to Zion, Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid, because you will say, here is your God. Okay? With a roof. Sorry, that was the roof lady. So that was a roof joke. Okay? Yeah, I mean... You have to go to school to be this kind of witty, but um, it's hard. But sometimes, you know, that's why I lift weights. Now, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. What are the people yearning for? To go to heaven? Are they yearning to go to heaven? No, what are they yearning for? The God comes back as king to his nation. The return of the king, if you will. <laughs> yep. Next. In Isaiah 52, we get this same picture. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, God has returned as king. Next. Listen, you who watch on the walls, you will shout for joy. When the Lord returns, you will see it with your own eyes. So the great hope that Isaiah pictures isn't some abstract afterlife. It's literally that God comes back as king of his people, correct? Now, our Old Testament ends with a book called Malachi, And in Malachi, there are these tantalizing hints about what's to happen next. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before my return. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. So there's going to be a messenger before God comes. Next. 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 There we go. Thank you, Dave. And we get a little more information about this messenger. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and the dreadful day of the Lord comes. All right, now, you did it. Ten minutes, solid background. A couple of points I really want you to focus on. First of all, the Old Testament does not end by asking the question how are we going to get all these sinners into heaven? That is not at all the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament ends with, when will God return to his people and assume his rightful place as king? When will he renew the project of fixing the mess that humans have made of the world? That's how the Old Testament ends. I'm not making that up. When we read the New Testament and say, well, Jesus came to just forgive our sins— we're, we're forcing an answer to a question that the Bible isn't asking. The Bible's asking the question, when will God come back as king? Well, Mark tells us how. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Boom. Oh, 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 Ellen. Ellen. Ellen's on our payroll secretly. Yes. And so, <laughs> professional encourager. All right. How about this for a first sentence? Hey, I'm going to write a gospel about the Savior of the world, y'all. How should I start? Well, here's a good idea. The beginning of the good news. That's all throughout Isaiah. The, the blessed are the feet that proclaim good news. Blessed are the voices that proclaim good news. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. That means Christ, right? Christ is in his last name as we talk about. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, And then you're like, oh, cool, this is, okay, this is the story about Jesus, great. He instantly, after one verse, says, oh, let me remind you of the story. There's no way you can read the book of Mark and go, oh, yeah, Jesus just shows up out of nowhere. The only way to understand what Mark's saying, and he tells you this, is you've got to go back into the story up till this point. And so he quotes Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way next. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So he's assuming that when you hear all of this language, you are immediately transported into that story we just summarized in 10 minutes. That Jesus, or whoever we're talking about, is coming as God into the fullness of his kingdom. So you're like, sweet, all right, well, who's the messenger? Bam. And so John the Baptist appeared. And he comes in the form of Elijah. All the details about his clothing, that's all Elijah's stuff. He appeared in the wilderness. Remember Isaiah said, in the wilderness prepare the way. So now he's in the wilderness, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism in Judaism was common, but usually the only ones that had to undergo a baptism for repentance were the God-fearing Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh. So a, a baptism of repentance was not very common, and so John is creating kind of a scandal by being away from the temple community and asking Jewish folks to repent. Interesting. And it's for the forgiveness of sins. Now, forgiveness of sins, we hear that, and we're like, yep, God forgives my sins individually. I confess my sins individually. Forgiveness of sins for them meant return from exile. That all of the old exile stuff. Because for Israel, they were in the promised land, but Rome was still in charge. So they weren't out of exile, even though they were in the land. So John is in the wilderness, saying, prepare for the coming of the Lord. And to do that, you must be baptized. Okay? So confessing their sins. And again, they're not confessing their individual sins. They're confessing their national sins. They were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Jordan River, of course, massively symbolic from the Old Testament as the place of renewal and entrance into the New Promised Land. The whole Judean countryside, Dave, and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. Oh, that's why you skipped ahead. It's because I read that part already. Man, you're so smart. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and honey. This is, these are callbacks to Elijah. And what was the message of the messenger? There's someone else coming. Right? Because remember, in the Old Testament, the messenger is going to come and pave the way for God to return. So it's not shocking that when we meet the messenger, the message of the messenger is, hey, there's someone else. And in this instance, after me comes the one more powerful than I, Dave, backwards, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Ooh, and that, we could stay on that forever. But Mark doesn't let us. Now, what Mark's done is he said, Hey, I want to tell you the story about Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, Messiah. Remember that verse in Isaiah? Here's John. There's the messenger. And you're like, sweet, the messenger, which means the king is coming. And this is how we meet the king, the most uninspiring. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized. Siri! (laughs) They're always listening. They're always listening. And a voice from heaven called down and said, here's what I found. (sighs) At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Now, torn open here is a phrase that we're going to use at the end of Mark 2. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Now, this is where we get the idea of the Trinity. All right, The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but when you have Jesus, a voice from heaven, and a spirit involved, the idea is that there, there is one God, and yet there's some sort of threeness to this deity. Because all three are participating like at the same time. And this voice says, you are my son. So Mark tells us he is God's son. And then God tells us, you are my son, whom I love. That's from Psalm Two with you I am well pleased. That's from Isaiah 42. So, you can't read this and not be drawn all the way back into Israel's story. And remember, Israel's story was asking the question, when will the king return? It was not asking the question, how do we get saved? Next, at once, and Mark skips all the details. He's just constantly got Jesus on the move. At once, the Spirit set Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by this Satan for 40 days, one day for each of the years that Israel was tempted in the wilderness. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. I don't know why the wild animals are mentioned, but evidently they were there too. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the what? The good news, Right? Blessed are the feet of those who proclaim good news. Well, what's the good news? Here it is. The time has come. What time? The kingdom of God has come close to you. Repent. Now, repent. We, we think repent means, um, like, reconsider. Repent is, like, you know, on ways when... Um, It tells you to turn left, and you miss the turn, and it recalculates. Like, repent is recalculate your entire life. In light of the fact that there is something newly available to you that is drawn near. The time has come, the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase, what is that phrase referring to? What's it referring to? Isaiah, yes. What else? That's great. That's absolutely right it's referring to the whole story that began in Genesis, right? The kingdom of God is God coming back to his people as as king. Okay, so the kingdom of God, when people talk about the kingdom of God, sometimes it can be this weird, ethereal, theoretical thing. No, no, no. The kingdom of God, what you've been hoping for, that God will come back to his people as king and renew all creation, that thing has come near in the person of Jesus. All of that expectation, all the Malachi and Isaiah and the Exodus, all the failures and the restarts in the Old Testament are now all being focused on this Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, the interesting thing to me, so I was raised in American Christian circles, and I was told the message of Jesus was that I'm a sinner and God is holy and that Jesus came to pay the penalty for my sin so that if I accept him in my heart, I can go to heaven when I die. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Now, let me ask you, we're going we're gonna to study Mark. Does Jesus ever talk about any of that? Spoiler, he does not. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't parts of that that are true. There are, and Paul uses some of that imagery, no question. No question. But it's just fascinating when you hold up the message of Jesus that I was taught versus the message of Jesus. There's some slight differences. Right? There's a much different emphasis. The direction of the American gospel is getting us out of here into heaven. The direction of Jesus' gospel is God drawing near on earth. Right? Even when Jesus teaches us to pray, what are we praying for? That... God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that the direction is always that way. American Christianity has taught us to be religious people. So there are spiritual things and spiritual habits and spiritual places and spiritual people. The kingdom of God is an all-encompassing social reality that carries forward into eternity. But you participate now. And there isn't one part of human life that isn't untouched by the kingship of God. Not, by the way, because God is up there and needs attention, or, hey guys, I made some arbitrary rules, make sure you don't screw these up. No, no, no. God's project has always been to renew his image bearers so that they might fulfill the purpose for which they were created. That's what the word sin means in the Old Testament. Usually, we've all heard sin applied to archers, and there's this great passage in Judges where it says Israel's archers were so good, they didn't sin. And the word just means miss, or fail to achieve the purpose for which they were intended. So when human beings are declared sinful, it's not that you did something bad yesterday. Rather... That you and I do not fulfill the image bearing vocation for which we were created. And as a result of that, we screw up. But it's not the screw up that's the sin. The sin is that the human project, where God delegated authority and responsibility to his people so that they would rule with him and on his behalf, that is corrupted. And as a result, we're selfish, we're lustful, we're greedy. But the point of God's work isn't just to forgive all of those things, guys. Now, just be good and nice tippers on Sundays. The point of God's work is to renew the humanity that is the center of you. That is what the kingdom of God is describing as a reality. Now, I know this is new for some of us, so I want to pause and just say, this is where the 9 o'clock went nuts with 20 minutes of questions. I want to open it up for questions because... What I'm not saying is that we're the first ones to ever figure this out. We're not. If you ever hear that in Christian circles, like I finally found the secret to following Jesus. You haven't. But one of the reasons why we're going to Mark is to remind ourselves of how thin and shallow the American definition of salvation is. There's so much more. And the reason why so many of us are disappointed with God is because we were told it was one thing. But it's turned out to be something entirely different. Anyway, questions, thoughts, comments? The lights are raised. Yes, sir. I was going to say, if no one does, that's great. I'll keep going. Yeah, so I grew up similar, like that basic kind of ideology, theology of repent, turn, turn you know, so that you can go to heaven, whatever. Yeah. And then kind of come out of this, you know, way of thinking over the last five years and kind of moving into what you're talking about. I guess my question, though, is that still is, like, so ingrained in your psyche. yes. So I'm trying to figure out practices of, like, how do you actually move forward and believe that way and live that way when you're still being affected by the thing that you grew up with? Um, that's so good. To, to kind of move in to live that way rather than it just being, oh, this is really, I know this to be true, but something in my body is like, well, is it? You know? Totally. Yes. It's yes. yes. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah. Yes. I cannot escape the guilt matrix. Yeah. You know, that I sinned, I need to repent and confess, or I made Jesus might return and everyone will be raptured except me. And that's why we covered Revelation. So hopefully that has helped a little bit. How do we grow into the wholeness? Oh, answer number one, never by ourselves. Never. The great curse of American Christianity is it's made it just about us and God. And there is no, not one passage in the Bible that speaks of you working it out yourself. All of the you's in the New Testament are plural. When Paul writes to churches and he says you, he's not talking to you, he's talking to the church. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I know I say this and I'm so sorry I'm going to say it again. If you are not immersing yourself in the stories about Jesus, don't read any other part of the Bible. If you're in that space, just sit there and ask the question, what was Jesus' agenda? What did Jesus most care about? What did he get angry at? What delighted him? What astonished him? And the list you'll come up with is the exact opposite of American Christianity. Jesus didn't, wasn't impressed by celebrity or sermons or great songs or big churches. None of that. He was impressed with hiddenness and weakness and humility and boldness and courage. Right? I know you know all this. The third thing I would do is literally whittle down your spiritual disciplines, right, to pray the Lord's Prayer, read the book of Mark, and serve the poor. And over time, at least for me, yeah. that, op- that cracks things open that I just can't crack open by myself. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have this kind of hangover, because sure. it was so formative, right? It all hit us when we were so formative, the threat of hell, right? Oh, and you can't just wish your beliefs to change. But you can create environments where they become undercut. And that's what we want to do. That's so good. I know that's not a complete answer. There may be therapy or spiritual direction involved in that too. Because I don't, I mean, I know some of you will disagree with this, and that's totally fine. But like, I don't believe good theology saves us, but I think bad theology harms us. And I think that there's more than just something like, hey, that's a bad idea at play for some of us. I think we've internalized a guilt and shame system that was just not operating in the ministry of Jesus the way we've internalized it. I'm so proud of you for asking that. That is such a good question. And that's part of why, even though we've studied Mark, and and we've all heard these stories, right? If you've been in church for any length of time, we're going to read stories that you've heard a thousand times. Why revisit them? This is the reason. So good, you guys. Anything else you want to talk about? I see you in a Michigan shirt back there, sir. That is boldness that Jesus would applaud. Absolutely. I'm a Buckeye. Sorry, you just beat us again.
0: Oh, oh, I thought I thought.
1: No, he did not raise his hand. He didn't have to. He just sits there, radiating dominance over my Buckeyes, and it just it's it's hurt. It hurts. Now, is there anything else? Yes, sir. Oh, oh, Susie, you had oh, somebody. <laughs> Good morning. Um, just to sort of piggyback on that, our friend and former pastor told us um, the single greatest life-changing event he ever experienced was was him not living for God, but allowing God to live through him. Hmm. And, and that's what I kind of have found that piece in. Theologies always make me think that I have to do something to achieve something. Holy. And by allowing God to live through me, those are achieved without me doing it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You still have a part, but your part isn't to make it happen. Your part is to participate and receive. Oh, so good. That, that difference, it sounds, all the Christians in the room are like, yeah, we all know that in theory. But the difference when you realize that you can actually trust the goodness of Jesus towards you And it's okay that you really do screw up and that God is in the process of renewing you. Like to believe that is to live an entirely different kind of human life. That's the only reason like you can get to the place where you can forgive somebody that hurt you. You don't just will yourself to that. When we believe that God is that generous. And again, all of these are cliches. We've all heard them. But there is a reality behind them that we want to begin to tap into. Good, anything else? Oh yes, I forgot
0: there's like an agenda to that though like like there's like an agenda to to that that theology that people had, because i'm sitting here thinking about like that that doesn't just come up you know like there's got to be an agenda behind that
1: oh don't you're going to get me <laughs> in so much trouble
0: <laughs> but i was also thinking i was just thinking just to like add on like is yeah. this does what you were talking about connect to um philippians three thirteen through 14 where it talks about I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God, Christ Jesus. Like, that whole thing, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about that verse, and I was like, man, that, like, they, like, connect so well, I feel like. Totally. You know what I'm talking about? that. that oh, verse? yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, that whole section is Paul comparing what he did, the, the spiritual resume he had apart from Christ, with what he has in Christ now, and saying it's complete rubbish, right? And then he goes on to say, I press into it, not because he doesn't have it, but because he already does. So the pressing into it isn't to grab something, the pressing into it, it's like if if somebody said, hey, you won the lotto, right? And you go and collect your winnings, that's pressing into it, right? You don't have to do it to get the money, you've got it already, but you do have to receive it and then steward it well, totally. Totally, so good.
0: Me, like think like, because like if you if you really like think about it like like you take it way far back like
1: take it all the way back. If they
0: didn't have this theology, how many more people would be you know like believers? Because I, I think to myself, how many of my friends had told me, oh, how could you believe in, in a god that sends you to hell? Right, right, right. Do you know? You get what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah. So if there's not, I hope that you're coming thinking, Tuesday. I feel like there'd be more people who would yeah. love Jesus right. the way that the church does. Right. If that makes sense.
1: Yes. All right.
0: So sorry, that's not really a question. That's
1: a great question. Yeah, dude, great. Hey, this dude, this is so open. This is great. Can I respond to that real quick? <laughs> no, I'd love it. Couple of thoughts. Number one, does um. Does our theology need to be perfect for God to work in our lives? No, because we'd all be toast. So never is this an issue of those people and them and how did they and... No, no, no. This is about about us and about us being whole and living into the fullness of God's salvation. The second thing is that I think there are certain forms of theology that benefit the proclaimers of those bits of theology. Right? I think it's not coincidence that men will often proclaim that women can't serve in the church, for instance. Now, again, not everyone agrees, but I'm firmly believing the Bible is so clear on this. But what about 1 Timothy 2? Oh, yes, I know 1 Timothy 2. But I think there's a, I think there's a benefit that happens when you're a gatekeeper, that happens personality-wise, celebrity-wise, power-wise, acclaim-wise, money-wise... Uh, I think that the, the Reformation was a good thing because the church had invested itself in being the holders to salvation apart from any other means. And we are able to sell, you know, forgiveness. I mean, I, and I think that still happens today. I think capitalism has absolutely corrupted the American church. And, and I'm, a, I'm a part of that. I'm not separate from that. I'm absolutely part of that. So I think there are dynamics that are liberated by certain theologies. I mean, how did we get to the place where you could read the Bible and go, slavery is good. So you have to separate social justice from, like, salvation in order to make that claim. So we have this great divide, and people today are even like, well, the Bible doesn't care anything about justice. And you're like, have you not read the entire book? That is what salvation looks like when it's achieved among people. Right? It isn't just some heaven thing when we die. And so this works out in how how we see everything that's happening around us. So I love it. I love it. Last one, Suze.
0: This is kind of important because I think there's a lot of people here that have these tiny, beautiful babies, and they're rebuilding their faith. And so this is a simple but really great question what is the simple message we can give to our kids? And then there was another question from someone who asked, how do we then share our faith? Because when we grew up with that, what you described as the way you share your faith, how do we now share our faith? So kids and then neighbors, friends, and all of that.
1: Well, my kids are a mixed bag, so I'm not sure. No, um, I, I think... My answer is going to be different from yours because I'm engaged in vocational ministry, which means pastor's kid syndrome is a very real threat. So the most important message I give my kids is my approval and love for you doesn't depend on whether or not you follow Jesus. And the goal of my parenting isn't to ensure that you do. The goal of my parenting is that you are healthy and mature. Do I think? Do I want? Do I pray for? Do I want to bless towards Yes, absolutely. And the reason I parent that way is because that's the way God parents me. So my role as a parent is to embody the way that God treats me. And and is that perfect? Nope, Hannah will give you lists. Absolutely. But, and again, there's no such thing as growing kids God's way. What a piece of demonic garbage for those of you that are old enough to know about this. There is no biblical parenting. That is crap. Be free from that, all right? There is no biblical manhood. There's no biblical womanhood. There's no biblical marriage. There is no biblical parenting. Are there principles that you can apply? Yes. But if you read the Bible, how many great parents were there? Hardly any. How many great marriages were there? Nope. You won't find a great marriage in the Old Testament except maybe with my 34th concubine. She and I were, I mean, right? (laughs) So this whole industry of shaming Christians into these narrow filters. So if you're a parent, be free, right? So the the great permission that I give my children is the great permission that God has given me. Love always invites. It never manipulates. It never coerces. It never uses violence. It never uses threats. So I just try to channel that into my children. And when people say, Hey, how would you articulate the gospel? Oh, there's a thousand different ways. Whenever somebody says, um, How do you become a Christian? I just simply say, Well, let's pick up a book. Let's read the book of Mark. Let's have a notebook next to you. And let's talk about every single question you have. Because I don't want you to become a Christian. I want to introduce you to the person of Jesus. Because Christianity has a whole lot to apologize for. The church has a whole lot to apologize for. The person of Jesus is the most compelling human figure in the history of the world. And I will simply, Dallas Willard has this great line, when somebody said, hey, why do you follow Jesus? Dallas Willard says, well, who else did you have in mind? (laughs) Because we all follow somebody. Right? And I just think that gentle, invitational, pointing to Christ... Our world isn't looking for better churches. Our world isn't looking for slick sermons and more celebrities, right? Our church is literally looking for a group of people who takes the Jesus thing seriously enough that they're willing to admit when they're wrong, that they're willing to be humble and not fight over who gets credit, and they're willing to truly love their enemies. And so the point of Mark is simple. All right, this is the point we're going to make for 13 weeks. You cannot accept Jesus without accepting his agenda. That's it. The disciples accept Jesus, but they refuse to accept his agenda of the cross. So they turn out to be the undisciples, whereas the outsiders, the misfits, the sinners, they totally are willing to see his suffering. And so they become the true disciples of the book of Mark. That's why the whole book of Mark ends with a centurion looking at Jesus going, that's the Son of God. The disciples don't say that. Even when Peter says it, he's re- he has to be rebuked because he misunderstands what it means. So for an American church that by and large is entitled, that sees itself as a political interest group, that is angry and offended at everything, Jesus is going to invite us to, take, to stay on our crosses, to renounce the desire we have for self-preservation in order to be a blessing to those who our culture would say least deserve it. That's the agenda. In America, you can have Jesus without his agenda, and that's why Jesus gets hijacked. In Mark, you cannot. His agenda is the cross, and that is where he becomes king. And so if we're going to live into his kingdom, that's what his kingdom is inviting us into. That's threatening, so threatening to us, to me. All right, so, man, this, you guys, just look at me for a second. If you're new, the reason we do questions is because we're tired of having religious authorities that no one can doubt or ask. We're tired of having a Christianity that is based on having every single answer tied in a neat little bow we're good with mystery and we're good with tension because that's what's in the scriptures. And we're okay with a community of people who don't all agree on stuff. Like you read the disciples, man, you know, we talk politics, right? You've got a tax collector and you've got a zealot. You could not be further politically, but this has to be the place where Jesus is compelling enough that that isn't the most important thing about us. So, One last word. No yawning, my love. That's a big yawn, too. And no one blames you. Everyone says she speaks for all of us. It's true. Absolutely. But, oh, I forgot my point. It was fine. We're done. All right. so, around the room, if you're new, there are stations around the room. We do three things at these stations. There are people who give generously. There are people who write prayers down on the pieces of paper that are there that we pray for during the week. And most importantly there, we take the Lord's Supper. And today, if you go to take the Lord's Supper, and all are welcome to do so, I want you to take it with uh, awareness that you're saying yes to an agenda, not just to my personal salvation. We, far too often, we come at the Bible fully formed with opinions on everything. And we interrogate the Bible and the church by our pre-held opinions what needs to happen is the Bible needs to interrogate our politics and our views of the world. And so to take communion is to say, I don't stand over the text or over Jesus. I stand under the text and under Jesus in order to be shaped by them. Make sense? So let me pray. Band, go ahead and come up. You guys are awesome. You guys are awesome. Thank you, Sambo. Let's pray together. And let's all close our eyes this time for crying out loud. If I can see your eyes, they're not closed. Kidding. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we receive the goodness of your word, your example, your ministry, your love, your grace. We want to live into the fullness of that great gift. God, we also receive the agenda that you have for the world. And Lord, we want to put off and cast aside the parts of what we think and what we've embraced that don't align with your kingdom as it's come and is coming. And so that we pray we would be a people of repentance, not some mournful sorrow over mistakes we make, but rather a people who continually interrogates our agendas for the world by yours. And so we take the bread and the cup to just symbolically say, yes, we want, we want to be a part of this cross-shaped kingdom. We ask for your grace to love us into the fullness of what that way of life means and looks like. So thank you for this community. This, this is fun, but more than that, God, we want to be people that, that look and act and talk like you. So we love you. Amen.